Welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast, hosted by myself, Simon Solzer, and Aline Halsworth. Hey! That's me. Hello. Yeah. We're back with a product deep dive review where we're going to explore what was, I think, was a really interesting product in the sense of uh, Laurie Santos was our last guest. It was natural for us to ask her about shared living. And and communes and uh, kibbutz is that how you pronounce kibbutz. it? Uh, I, I think it's kibbutz. Okay, but okay. I'm also not the expert on that one. <laughs> yeah, but that was really I think interesting discussion. As a quick recap, so Laurie was uh, speaking about how, for example, we clearly can benefit on a social aspect of living with other people. But we might struggle because we might not always have the tools to communicate effectively. And so one of the most effective mm. things you can do in shared living spaces, like she operates or, or is head of a college, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And Sullivan College. That's right. And so with her college, for example, she actually involves some aspects of supporting people with communication. So like how to have crucial conversations. And another thing that she raised as a very potentially valuable thing you can do is prime values, like really trying to understand what are the values that are shared within a group and and kind of using that as a way to bring people more together and understand each other as well. But yeah, today is about us sharing a little more of our thoughts as well. (laughs) And uh, curious, have you ever had a shared living situation in terms of beyond shared partner and and child? I mean, I would say for maybe not most of my life, but college for sure. And then when I you know, went out into the real world and got a job, I made such little money that I like, had to have at least three or four roommates at every uh, house that I lived in. So yeah, I've, I've had a lot of roommates. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think like what if I weren't, you know, I'm blaming the money now, but if I weren't mm. forced into it by necessity, would I have chosen to live with other people? I think when I first moved to Durham, the answer is yes, because I knew no one. And this also served mm. as a way to kind of enter the community without you know, having to go out and, and meet people, you know, you know, go to a bar and just introduce myself. So it's sort of when you live with other people, they, they come with all of their own friends and you can kind of cheat by meeting them and meeting people through uh, through other people. So yeah, I've definitely had a lot of these experiences and I've enjoyed them. I do think that I, I've felt some of the, the complications that Laurie referred to um, in terms of different different preferences, right? Like I, I tend to be preferences. Well, yeah, that's that's really the big one for me. It's <laughs> yeah. embarrassing that you <laughs> that it's that obvious. Well I can see your office and it's always, you know, <laughs> things everywhere. Uh, other people are really messy. Um and I just it's one of those things that causes me a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. Um I it's not something I've been able to to work out. So I had to, for example, marry someone who's cleaner than I am so that I like wow. I'm never mad at him for for being messy because he will yeah. like never leave a dish in the sink ever. Like it's just not allowed. But it, but yeah, I think that's one of the complications. But definitely I think we underappreciate the benefits to having people really conveniently there and co-living really solves this problem. If you kind of think about our 
friendships now in this time and how different it is from what you might call the olden days. There's a ton, typically a ton of friction to getting together with your friends. You you have to like find a time that's good, like reach out to them, compare your calendars. Like there's so much back and forth, so much friction and communication. And if you think about if someone were just conveniently there, you could like, just talk to them, hop on over. I think in the past, it was very normal to just like pop over to your friend's house or your neighbor's house and and communities were much more integrated. That definitely feels like an exception now. And maybe uh, you might know more about the current co-living environment given your experience. Is it because I'm from a socialist country? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, you you have mentioned that you live in an arrangement. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I was going to say as well, like when you refer to like historical uh, times where we, we yeah. live more, you know, is it Epicurus you're referring to, or like how far back? How far back? Um, but it, I I'm mean, curious, like I, at least yeah, our great grandparents, yeah. my grandparents. Yeah, because I think one of the interesting things in terms of this is. I randomly got into philosophy like while I was studying economics. So like just on the side, I was reading philosophy. And one of the my favorite philosophers that I came across was Epicurus. And he obviously, if anyone follows his philosophy, you know that he's big on communal living. It's one of his main things when it comes to what he's thought, his answer to what makes you happy is to live with friends. And he was so I thought you meant the... <laughs> What did you, you know, think? Well, <laughs> you think the, the, the food app? It was like the recipe app. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this? Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that is an American, maybe more American reference. Yeah. yeah okay. I'm talking about the Greek <laughs> philosopher. <laughs> I know Epicurean, but I guess that refers to yeah. Epicurious. Yes. Wow. I think they're spelled differently, but, but it, I think maybe, you know, I'm happy to be told wrong here. If, Email podcast at habaweekly.com if you have an answer on how to pronounce these things. But basically what I think is interesting with with that is that he was so influential during his time that I think it was about 400, maybe 500,000 people during that time ended up living communally based on his kind of philosophy. And then Christianity came in the 5th century and said, stop living so communally. Mm -hmm. And so we might have been much more communal in many parts of the world if it wasn't for for that uh, historical event. And um, yeah, I have had personal experience. And, um, you know, I would say one of the biggest influential one was in college, probably, where I moved to Australia to study and lived a year in kind of shared apartment with two others. So kind of a communal, but really small. That was honestly not great. It was a little bit, you know, you get most of the hard things without maybe getting as much of the fun as as well, Mm -hmm. I think, for me. But what really changed uh, my life was one day getting uh, chips. (laughs) Like, it's one of those random things that happened in my life where... Chips being fries or chips being chips? Chips being chips. Uh, So I'm going to speak to the way you speak now. Yeah. Based on the misconception Well, you said football earlier today and I was really confused. I'm sorry. (laughs) But yeah, so I never went to a supermarket and to buy ships and started talking to someone in the ship's aisle. But then for some reason that Friday, I ended up speaking to this guy next to me, happened to be German, happened to be living in this college 
that seems super cool. And he really recommended it. So I signed up. It was the last day of application. I got in. And I'm so fortunate because through those two years of living in this kind of 150 people college, I not only, probably some of my best friends are, are people that I met there. So it completely changed how I interacted with people from feeling yeah. like very alone in Australia to feeling like I'm surrounded by, by friends. Um, I got introduced to effective altruism uh, through through that. Some people know that I'm interested in that. Behavioral science influenced me in some ways. You know, this is a fun fact for anyone listening. So if you know anyone who's followed LinkedIn, you know Peter Slattery. And so Peter Slattery and I live in the same co-living space. And we had, you know, dorm rooms not too far away from each other. So even on the behavioral science level, I think I, I got some some influence from from that shared living. So it worked for me really well in college. And then afterwards, I think it's been a little bit more of a hit on this when I've tried to kind of re hmm. recreate that kind of experience. Okay. So let's talk about where why it was a miss. Like let's put on our behavioral mm-hmm. designer hats. And um, like do you feel like you can articulate what went wrong and and like how it could have been designed differently if it were a quote unquote product that to, yeah, how would you improve it? Well. I can say actually something funny that I don't think I've mentioned is that I was actually part of an, a big initiative that I think this was in 2015, maybe, where a university in Stockholm had built a huge house to be the house of the future with mm. about 50,000 sensors. And they had a variety of people living in the house with the thing that you know they were voluntarily open to being tracked on various things. And so this house... <laughs> Nowadays, had... you're just involuntarily tracked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they actually agreed to it, uh, you know, explicitly. And uh-huh. so this house was purposely designed to be kind of a shared living space and seeing like how, you know, they had a lot of students because it was kind of close to campus, but they also had other people that were not students. And and they wanted to kind of see like which spaces in the house are most used and not used and and everything was tracked, like literally from like the air that was breathing in a certain part of the, the room, for example, to electricity use and, and everything else. So a lot of data. And so I, I can share <laughs> some insights from that experiment, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so what's interesting there, first of all, huge cultural differences, as you could probably imagine. And so I would say shared living is quite common in a lot of parts of the world. And we're probably... You know, similar, you know, I live in Sweden, you live in the US, a little bit similar that it's not as common where we live, but in other places, very, very common. And so also some people from those cultures coming to Sweden, for example, were very, very open to to interacting Mm -hmm. and and doing this stuff. Turned out Swedish people were less open. uh, (laughs) I'm surprised by this. (laughs) Less keen to mingle. And so I think people that were Scandinavian, they were like more like to use Locker, lock themselves into their rooms or their kind of private spaces. The spaces there were most likely to have shared interactions were dining rooms. So in the kitchen, right? Kitchen, especially, but also like eating specifically. Mm-hmm. So not yeah. only like cooking together, but specifically like eating together. Makes and sense. I would say when it comes to preferences, that is good because each of you could bring different things to eat together but you have a shared space to, to eat. And so I think from a behavioral design point of view, that makes sense, that you have like a lot of autonomy and you don't lose 
a lot of the cost that might come with like having to watch the same television because they yeah, have I was gonna to say, watch like, the same fight show. over the remote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in that case, you can cook whatever you want and then bring it and then you can eat it together and you get the social benefit without kind of having to suffer any great costs. What if someone cooks something that's very stinky and no one wants to be around them? That is probably something that was actually happening in that that house. I've had less experience with, but I would say even on personal levels, I would say that the kitchen has been the best place really in any shared living situation. But yeah, what, what do you think about in terms of putting on the behavioral science, behavioral design hats? I think one of the things that I was that I was thinking about as you were mentioning the diversity of the the people in your living arrangement was that when you think about existing co-living spaces, most of them or not spaces, but but arrangements, right? Most of them are dorms and college students and people fresh out of college and like my experience and and most of your experience as well. Um, but then when you think about who What's the population where loneliness is the biggest problem? Like, it's not those groups. Those are already the groups that are going out and socializing and, you know, have a lot of friends or continuing to make a lot of friends. It's the much older populations. And I think that there's a need to actually create a demand for these spaces among older adults who might have more of a problem of loneliness and might actually benefit much more from these kinds of spaces. And so what my my behavioral scientist hat is, okay, how do we make this appealing to people who, you know, maybe have outlived their partner or like they've had kids and their kids have moved on and now they're kind of in a place where they've, they've never been before, where they're not surrounded by people. They might want to, but it seems like how do you even start to have that conversation? Where do you look? There aren't, doesn't seem like there are many options for this group of people. Well, come to my hometown and you'll find a uh, beautiful little kind of uh, glass enclosed building community with palm trees in Sweden. And uh, it's specifically for for what you described. And I think they actually did a pretty good job Yeah, because they kind of, they knew that also some of the old people might struggle in terms of Sweden. It's cold, it's slippery, it's, it's hard to get out. So you might stay in for those reasons as well. So they actually specifically made something that had like a huge courtyard and space where you could interact and move and and do things that was safe and warm and and nice. So I really like that example. And I always feel jealous driving past it because I'm, you know, going past in winter and and it's... (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's a version of this that is common, but it's like the nursing home. It's a community, right. but you you only resort to going into that community when you need help or like you can't, yeah. you know, you can't live at home anymore. You can't take care of yourself. And so as a result, there's this stigma that's attached to an older adult's co-living space, right? But I think there's a, a need for, you know, your version um, more widely where you can actually um, just hang out with other older people and it's cool. Yeah. And then it's probably worth mentioning that a lot of this stuff is very system and societal driven. I think a lot of people in, you know, younger generations today or, you know, even middle-aged would say like, I can barely afford to, let's say, have certain things in my current set of situations. Like if I wanted to add, like I was thinking this basic thing of like just having more people in the same place. It sounds good, but also might require bigger spaces and that's more expensive to as an investment initially. And mm-hmm. you could band together, but it's complex. So there's like a lot of, 
you know, societal friction. system yeah. frictions that makes mm-hmm. it hard to kind of get together. Because I think a lot of people would dream about, oh, I would love to live in a kind of a apartment building with all of my friends in different apartments. But then yeah. you have to How buy do you an apartment find that place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like finding a whole apartment where all, like all of the units are empty, that's not that's not easy. Yeah. So uh what do you say? Are you more or less likely to uh to put uh, Nico in a kibbutz after this episode? I would say I'm equally likely to put him in a kibbutz. And I won't tell you what that likelihood is. Um. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> So um, I guess we can wrap it up here. This was really fun episodes and a little bit fun to dive further into this as well. And we'll continue with this to dive further into various topics and products along the way of season three of the Be Able to Sign podcast. So stay tuned. New episode coming out in one week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great one. So yeah. Awesome. See you then. Time to wrap up another episode of the Behavioral Design Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, and I am an AI. Yeah, welcome to Uncanny Valley. Sam and Aline told me this is going to be an awesome season. So make sure to subscribe and help spread the word. Maybe share the podcast with a colleague or friend. And if you want to show us some extra love, head over to Habit Weekly. Come and join our community. Pro members get access to a wealth of resources and the chance to interact with leading practitioners. It's a great way to support the podcast and deepen your understanding of behavioral design. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pizarro. And thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. For questions or ideas for future episodes, email podcast at habitweekly.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, do 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 do